cognition didn't evolve to relate to itself. It evolved to relate to the outer world. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an accident of evolution that we've developed this ability to relate entirely to our inner world as if that was the world, right? And there's going to be nothing but trouble come from that because <laughs> the system isn't really designed to do that. It, it doesn't have the hardware or architecture needed to sort out an entirely imaginary inner environment. Mm. I don't need to work on the inside out part because the outside in is really what controls human experience. Yeah. And I would say that's quintessentially contextualism. You know, there is an inside, but we don't give it the dominance that people have traditionally given it. And we're more likely to see the interactions as much more reciprocal and maybe slightly unbalanced to the environmental side. Welcome back to Act Root to Fruit. I'm on a quest to excavate the roots of the contextual behavioral psychologies and sciences so that all of us can get more precise and think more functionally about the work that we're doing. Today I'm so thrilled to be bringing you the great Kirk Strassel. For those of us in the know, he's a man who really needs no introduction. And for those not, he's been around for decades doing seminal work in the development of DBT, in behavioral activation with Neil Jacobson, and then with Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson, and the rest developing ACT, as noted by his authorship on the major ACT textbook. Well, I, I've, been, I've been really um, devouring recently depression in context. And um, I know that you were, I learned from that book that you were a postdoc with Neil Jacobson. Uh, yeah, actually, I was uh, his project director for a couple of years, and then we formed a pretty nice, long-lasting friendship. Yeah. And uh, so I actually was involved with him all the way through the formative years of integrative couple therapy with Andy Christensen. And, okay. Um Actually, he was in the midst of doing the uh, component study for depression, uh -huh. comparing behavior activation and cognitive therapy and Paxil huh. when he when he had a heart attack. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> I was involved in that project, and so was Patty, who you met, because mm -hmm. we helped create the behavior activation protocol. Okay. And Neil's thing was he thought all along that behavior activation was the key ingredient in cognitive therapy. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the beginning of that. He used to joke because the Beckians brought all of their A team because Beck was really worried about how this would turn out, this big comparative study. Uh-huh. And so Steve Holland and Keith Dobson were like the supervisors for the CT therapists, and they were picking the best people they could find. Mm -hmm. And Neil would kind of come into these research meetings with Steve and Keith, and I'd be there. He'd say, I, you guys do whatever you got to do, because I got a secret weapon. <laughs> her, na her name is Patty. <laughs> she was the ringer, huh? She was the ringer. 
<laughs> you can take whoever you want. As long as I got Patty, I'm going to beat you. you know? It was like, it was like a grade school football or kickball yeah. kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody got along very, very nicely. And it was a lot of fun. Hmm. Wow. That, that sounds like good times. I've got, I've got really fond memories of the university of Washington. That was the first place I got involved in research. Um, I was, I was uh, going to Bastyr where, Matt Vallette yeah. and uh, Dan Rosen are, and I and I and I wanted to get some research experience, and I um, was lucky enough to to be able to volunteer in Alan Marlat's lab. Um, oh, cool! Yeah. yeah, yeah, such a nice place. Well, before I was with Neil, I was uh, with Marshall Linehan for yeah. two and a half years. So uh, that that was kind of a who's who of famous people in behavior therapy. Yeah walking around in the halls and, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders with people. It was pretty in intimidating yeah. at one level, but yeah. exciting at another level. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so you went, you went from West Lafayette to, to Seattle for a postdoc. That's how you got out there. Yeah. Basically yeah. I did my internship at American Lake in Tacoma. Okay. Okay. And then I got hired by Marsh's lab to be the director of what's called the suicidal behaviors research clinic. Okay and uh, spent about two and a half years there and then uh, went and joined Neil's project. He was actually doing the cognitive therapy plus marital therapy for depressed women. So, okay. you know, straight up cognitive therapy compared to cognitive therapy plus behavioral marital therapy. Mm -hmm for maritally distressed women, you know, to see if what the role of marital therapy would be in helping treat depression. Mm -hmm. So that was actually the project he was in the middle of when I joined him. And then we kind of went on to do this components yeah. study. Yeah. And, and at, during that time, when you're doing this component study, you're also involved in, in ACT as well. Yes. Yeah. And where, where was uh, Neil in terms of ACT and his, his, where, you know, his view on this? Well, Neil and Steve went to the same um, internship, Brown University. Oh, they they were in this. Okay. They were in the same class. Uh huh. So they must have. So they hated each other. <laughs> they. Uh, well, let's just put it this way. They had a friendly competition and rivalry. Okay. But they were they were actually very very close. Okay. And I was kind of close to both of them. So I was kind of the uh, third person in the room with that. And so Neil was always really, really curious about what we were up to with this act stuff. Okay. So he would take me out to dinner and ply me with alcohol and drugs and then try to get me to talk. <laughs> and I think actually, because he could see the handwriting on the wall, Neil was very, very um, ambitious, but he's kind of what I would call a friendly, ambitious person because his ambition was not just for himself, but to help all of his graduate students and the people in his circle. Yeah. And you'll notice almost every one of his graduate students went on to fame, huh. partly because he was so preoccupied with launching them okay. and giving them, you know, early publications, yeah. giving them the experience they needed to be top flight academicians. Yeah. Um, but I think Neil got really worried about what mindfulness was going to do to bra behaviorism. And so he got more and more involved with uh, 
applying mindfulness in marital therapy. Okay. And that's actually how he and Andy Christensen hooked up. Okay. So this is sort of Neil's response to uh, what Steve and I were doing with individuals was to apply, you know, let's see what we can do if we start applying acceptance to couples work. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of this was all happening at the same time. I mean, in a week, I might have a conversation with Neil, with Steve, with Alan. I mean, it was that kind of environment, one of those uh, times that you never forget. Yeah. Electrifying, I would imagine. Yeah. So, but you said he was worried about mindfulness? Well, not worried in the sense he didn't believe in it. He didn't want to be left behind. I see. I see. So that was Neil quintessential was he was a, a front running genius type person who didn't want to look like he was following anybody. Right. I mean, that was his makeup. That was his DNA. Yeah. And, you know, Steve's a little bit like that, but he's a little bit more laid back, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, people don't get to those levels of prominence and influence by being lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not intellectually lazy people. Yeah, yeah. I've been working. I always on found it for Neil a while. was always Neil was all and I always had a huge amount of fun whenever yeah. we were together. The bull, nice. the bullshit would flow freely, and uh, <laughs> then we'd get in some serious conversations. Nice. About, about yeah, he's, things. he's uh, he and Bob, uh, Bob Kohlenberg and Barb Kohlenberg and I all come from the same place. Which yeah, I'm, yeah, good old Milwaukee. Uh, so where where do you think he would stand now if he if he was still alive on looking at this the the, the CBS technologies and what's come about? I think he would be uh, have done amazing things with contextualism Mm -hmm. because that's just who he was. And it was, he was headed in that direction. I mean, you could see it in just in his evolution. Uh, Behavior activation is kind of a contextual, I mean, it really shifts the lens from the outside in to the, or excuse me, the inside out model of cognition to the outside in model of uh, environmental influence. Mm and environmental shaping, and that's behavior activation. Basically, he said, I don't need to work on the inside out part because the outside in is really what controls human experience. Yeah. And I would say that's quintessentially contextualism. You know, there is an inside, but we don't give it the dominance that people have traditionally given it. And we're more likely to see the interactions uh, as much more reciprocal and maybe slightly unbalanced to the environmental side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, in the behavior activation arm of that study, the first study, uh, the therapists were prohibited from talking with clients about any beliefs they had. <laughs> that was because Beck was going to throw a temper tantrum okay. that they were bootlegging cognitive therapy in. Uh-huh. So basically the protocol was how do you talk to people about 
recontacting reinforcements mm. in their life mm -hmm. without getting into their belief systems about whether it's going to make any difference or, you know, yeah. the depressogenic stuff. And um, that was the reason he said, my secret weapon's Patty. Because Patty knows how to do that. In a, in a gentle way without... In a, in a gentle way. Yeah. We're not challenging cognitions. We're not restructuring anything. We're just... Mm -hmm allowing those things to be there as the focus relentlessly shifts back to what are you going to do different? Yeah. And actually, in fact, <clears throat> focused acceptance and commitment therapy, what we routinely say to people when we're training is uh, the main job of the therapist is to create behavioral variability. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what techniques you use. If you're able to get people to try different things in their life, in their, in their environment, they will naturally gravitate to things that work better. Hmm. It's, and if you think about ACT, it's sort of, it's the cognitive aspects of ACT. What is the main problem? It's rule following that leads to an excessive narrowing of repertoire, mm -hmm. right? People are basically using the same basic behavioral strategies, even though those things don't work. And because they're following rules rather than their direct experience, which would be another key behavioral strategy, right? Yeah. Instead of living, instead of living by the ABC model, they're living by arbitrary derived rules that tell them what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so don't even bother to pay attention to the C. Yeah. And you could see, uh, how these things kind of come together because that's exactly what Neil was talking about in different terms. Yeah. That yeah. when people lapse into these states of being that are unproductive, they've often drawn themselves out of contact with sources of positive reinforcement, but also sources of self-efficacy, self-determination, mm -hmm. And in ACT, we have our own way of talking about it, but it's basically the same problem. So now I used to think this was real complicated, you know, and you had to have a lot of skills to be a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Now I think you just have to know how to get people to try something different. And you start that conversation with them yeah. the minute they walk in the door. You, you, uh, I, from my, um, um, what I've heard from you over and over again is you, you, you work on this kind of experiment metaphor a lot with people. Yeah. That seems like. An experiment requires a person to go back into contingency shaped learning, meaning what actually happened when you did this behavior versus what actually happens when you do that behavior mm -hmm. and which of those consequences do you prefer? Yeah. Right. And then the nuance, the evolution part is how do you know what prefer means? Right. It could be, uh, I just like it better, and even yeah. though it's toxic. Yeah. So that's where values come in, which is the yardstick for what you prefer. Mm hmm is your stated values and principles about where you would like to see yourself headed, right? So yeah. without that, and I think that was something Neil would have 
climbed all over if he was still alive, mm -hmm. that we didn't have a metric. We just going out and starting to make contact with positive reinforcers blindly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it may help you with depression, but it may not help you with life direction and functionality. So <clears throat> what was happening for me, I think in particular, because of where I was working, um, group health cooperative was I was becoming more and more preoccupied with uh, people's functional status rather than their symptom status. Okay. So how's your life working is yeah. the most important question, not how many symptoms do you have? Mm -hmm. Amen now, sometimes, that. sometimes symptoms interfere with your life working, in which case mm -hmm. symptoms are functionally important, but like your sinus the, infection right now. Yeah. Yeah. But over the years, symptoms sort of became reified as as the same as functioning. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and even though the research has been very clear for decades that you can have changes in symptom status without any change in functional status, there, mm -hmm. there's a real small correlation. Yeah. So there's something about how people function that is more important than how they're feeling at the time, right? And so the question is, what is drawing people along in that pipeline that would make that so? And that would be, there's something more important than how you feel when your principles are at stake. And, you yeah. know, if you just think about people that go out and lay down their lives fighting for their country, there, there's something more important than what, how you feel Mm -hmm. or how you individually are going to do right yeah. now. Yeah. Right. That's that higher calling. Yeah. So I think Neil would probably have um, developed his own version of this. And I think he was doing it. If you, if you study integrative couple therapy, one of the things he was diddling around with was asking uh, each member of the couple when they were first attracted to each other, what was it about this person that kind of drew you to them that, you know, created passion in you and basically um, it wouldn't take much of a move to sort of either talk about the acceptance of how those things change, but you could also easily draw people's values into that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, so you were looking for a person who could excite you, who was energetic, you know, that kind of um, sort of saw the possibilities and in, in new opportunities. Mm -hmm. Really cool, you know. So in, in a way, he started with values, but he didn't end with values. He kind of ended with acceptance. He's mm -hmm. accepting uh, the fact that you kind of drifted away from that you know, that the same thing that drew you to somebody now is causing you to be very irritated. Yeah. Is a classic journey through values. <clears throat> you you kind of outgrew what, what you were, right? And so you could actually blame the relationship for that. You know? Mm -hmm. it's, 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 yeah. Uh, so there, that, that's something tangible you can look at and say, damn you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Damn you for helping me grow into out of my comfort zone. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, so you mentioned something, one thing I want to just, I want to highlight, and that's, you know, what I'm hearing you say is for, for therapists out there, find your niche um, in terms of how you get people to try new things. We all, you have your, you had your way of, of doing it that works really well for you and, and how, how other people do it is probably not going to be the same, but uh, that's the idea. That's the, the theme that you're, you're promoting. Yeah, I think we always remind people that every session, however long it is, should end up with an experiment. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> the people are not going to talk their way into being better. Mm. And by the way, this is a yeah. long-standing criticism of the cognitive behavioral model is that it's way too inattentive to the in influence of environment and social yeah. context yeah. and cultural forces. And so, you know, this is sort of a correction, course correction, I think, if you look at ACT, by sort of saying, yeah, there is this context mm -hmm. called the mind and human experience, and it predominantly exists to relate to the outer world, not the inner world. Mm. Cognition didn't evolve to relate to itself. It evolved to relate to the outer world. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an accident of evolution that we've developed this ability to relate entirely to our inner world as if that was the world, right? And there's going to be nothing but trouble come from that because <laughs> the system isn't really designed to do that. It, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't have the hardware or architecture needed to sort out kind of a, an entirely imaginary inner environment. Mm. There's, there's too many uh, pieces to that Rubik's cube. <clears throat> so, you know, much like Buddhism and other mystical traditions, their solution is you walk away from any affiliation with that. You acknowledge that you have it, you can't get rid of it. Mm -hmm. It's going to be kind of a companion, but yeah. your entire life journey is freeing yourself from its behavior regulatory properties. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's mm. almost like we accidentally inherited this ability. There are some aspects of it that are okay, mm -hmm. but mostly it's toxic and dangerous. <clears throat> and and how, how important do you think it is for ACT clinicians or any CBS clinician to to see this as behavior, the internal as, be, as behavior as well? Well, in the sense that the system is built around rules and processes that can be investigated, like what RFT does, mm -hmm. right? You, this is not assembled randomly, right? It's, it's the careful product of eons of evolution. And so how this works is important to understand partly because it gives us a, a reason to basically say to people, there are certain things that you're just going to have to make room for because your mind does this automatically and, and we know how it works. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's so easy to plant this stuff in your mind because that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah. It was supposed to make you into a creature who followed the leader, right? 
And you don't want to have a system that's hard to program with massive numbers of people or apes uh, when the goal is follow the leader. Mm. <clears throat> so the system is built to acquire information very rapidly and rather indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know what the actual percentage of human intelligence now is arbitrary rule governed. Um, but I got to guess it's close to 90%. Hmm. That means, you know, we spend less than 10% of our time, if my estimate is accurate, um, we spend less than 10% of time actually looking at whether we're what we're doing works or not, whether there's a correspondence in the world, in the in the in the environment. Mm -hmm between what we think is gonna happen when we do something and what actually happens when we do something. And are you speaking of the general public or I'm, yourself I'm too? Speaking about everybody. What about you? Where are you at today? Same thing. 90? 90. <laughs> 90. <laughs> you don't have like a, a black, but your black belt doesn't, no. Uh, no. <laughs> Only when I'm helping other people. Okay, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Then it drops down to 50. Yeah. <laughs> You're so, you're so humble. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, what, well, so speaking of working with other people, like how important do you think it is? You mentioned earlier this, and, and I loved how you, 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 you talked about the outside being more important than the inside and us being, you know, being, being shaped by our environment more than, you know, our insides. And um, how important do you think it is for CBS clinicians to, 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 to metabolize that, to be effective or, yeah. Well, I think if you if you take the other position, you're kind of sitting on um, the fence because the other position basically says, you know, these problems arise from within, and that gives rise to biomedical models, mm -hmm. psychiatric illness. You know, it it feeds this sort of idea that this is something that's happening intrapersonally right? Mm -hmm. Not interpersonally. Um, and I think it actually makes it hard to understand where people are coming from. Because you're left with this um, stance that, you know, people don't normally have these kinds of problems, when in fact, everybody has these problems. Okay. These, these, when we say these problems are in the water supply, we, we don't mean that in a um, capricious way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, the seeds of our suffering are bred into us. <coughs> the outside in model actually has, just I'll give you a couple examples. What is emotional distress? So a key tenet of the inside out model is emotions sort of have a freestanding existence mm -hmm. and they, they go haywire. Kind of like emotional dysregulation. That, yeah, that, that there's, all, there's an entire um, industry uh -huh. in science built around this, in psychiatry. Yeah. Um, if you took the outside in, you would say something like emotions are feedback loops. 
So emotions are our earliest form of intelligence. They evolved long before cognition and language. And they read what the world is giving us in response to what we're doing to the world, right? So mm -hmm. when people come in and they're depressed, for example, and I walk in the room, my first thought is, there's no doubt in my mind, this person is engaging in behaviors in their life for which the legitimate, appropriate emotion is depression. So in ACT, we talk about, you know, emotions are not the enemy. And we mean that in two different ways, that emotions are not wrong, mm -hmm. right? And the goal, therefore, is not to get rid of them. What a lot of CBS clinicians hear is they're not something you have to get rid of. But what they don't hear is the way this person's feeling right now as they walk in the room, no matter what it is, is perfectly connected to what they're doing in their world. Okay. These guys, these emotion systems, these are 500,000 years old. They're not wrong. Yeah. The emotion systems that developed wrong in apes, those apes died. Mm -hmm. So what it allows you to do is to simply accept the fact that, well, our job isn't to figure out how to fix your disordered emotion system, fix your dysregulation. Our job is to go out into your world and see where the contact points are, mm -hmm. what's happening and what's not happening, what's rendering positive results and what's not yeah understanding that a large amount of your behavior out there is rule governed so you're not actually even paying attention to what's actually happening when you behave in certain ways you just behave that way because you were taught that's what you do right mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so in a curious way Radical behaviorism puts people back into contingency-shaped learning. I want you to go out consciously, volitionally, mm -hmm. try something that you haven't tried before. Look at what happened when you do that. And then compare it to what has been happening when you've been doing this other behavior. Mm -hmm. And then using the metric of your life values and where you would like to be headed in your life, which of these works better for you? And even if the one that works worse for you is something you were taught by everybody in your world, mm -hmm. you don't have to do it. Hmm. Yeah. You're in the middle of a huge conspiracy that's producing unprecedented amounts of mental disorders, addictions, suicide, you name it. And there isn't the pandemic we're talking about. Yeah. This was going on before the pandemic. No. You're talking about Trump? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, a lot of the things that you look around and you tear your hair out about are yeah. just exactly those things. Mm -hmm. Arbitrary rules applied without any sense of what the contingencies are that yeah. happen when you apply them, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty of human cognition, if you want to say there is a beauty, um, is it's we have that capacity. That's what rule governed behavior allows you to do. It allows you to overlook 
ignore the immediate consequences of your behavior yeah in pursuit of a, a longer promised reward yeah right the problem is when those rewards become highly abstract and they play into a cultural stereotype that is practically unattainable mm -hmm. like if you just play the game of life by the rules you'll end up happy yeah no one ends up happy mm -hmm. right so as these rules start to become second and third order as cognition becomes more and more self-gravitating it becomes harder and harder to specify what that consequence actually is but yeah. the rule remains intact so people will do these things for decades um i've worked with clients you know who basically are going to wait chronically suicidal who are waiting to die until their abusive father dies mm -hmm. so they can punish him yeah until the day he dies yeah and so there's a rule in there right that if you kind of keep laying it on mm -hmm. he will come to his knees he will repent he will tell you that you were wrong and you know he was wrong and you were right right and when you get people to articulate those things out loud they almost start laughing yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen to him if I keep punishing him, but the rule says something good will happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Could, could we, could we play around with something around that right now that I, I thought maybe we could just to demonstrate some of this, if you're sure. up for it. Okay. So I noticed myself, um, like right now we just, we just came from the beach and, um, and you know, you have the little, after you get off the beach, you get the thing where you can clean your feet off at, you know, with the hose. Yeah. 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 And, um, and so I'm with my, my, my spouse and our two children. And, um, we, we, we kind of are going there at the same time as another family and, but we get there first. And so we start cleaning off our feet and they're waiting for us. And that time, that, that whole time, I'm just so uncomfortable. Like, it's like, it's just bothering me that I'm, we, they're not moving fast enough. And these people are waiting for us. It, and, um, and, and I can see that in a lot of, in a lot of areas of my life, you know, this like, you know, kind of like. I can't, you know, this someone, someone else watching and, and me disappointing somebody or me yeah. let, yeah, you know, someone yeah. waiting for me. Well, my version of this is I can't play golf on a crowded golf course. Yeah. Because you're always having people standing in the middle of the fairway when you're on the green uh -huh. and they're swinging their clubs and you can imagine how impatient they're getting and yeah man if i miss this putt i'm going to have to putt again and it's going to take even longer and then i miss the putt of course because i'm not even focusing on golf at this point <laughs> i'm trying to get off the green yeah. to be nice <laughs> to, be to somebody exactly. else right or yell at my kids to hurry up to be nice to these yeah. people i don't even freaking know you know hmm so if you were, just if, think, you were, if you were doing some fact with me, would you, would you uh, do some self-disclosure like that? Talk about your, your experience. Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. Okay. That's everywhere. Don't you think like when any, some, anytime somebody's behind you, like the worst thing that could almost ever happen at a stoplight is you're the, at the stoplight and you don't see it turn green, <laughs> right? You're the first car in line. Yeah. And you're maybe looking at your cell phone or you drop something and you know you look up and oh my god i wonder how long that thing has been green but i'm wait, gonna get 
but maybe we share some similar cultural um, backgrounds that that you know make this more <laughs> relevant to us. I don't know. Or maybe I mean, all I, human beings. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, what's what are you supposed to do when you follow the leader? Keep the pace up. Don't get okay. too far behind. I mean, that's the archetype. Yeah. So you could take that almost anywhere in society, you know, talk about your educational achievement versus other people. Yeah. Your place at work versus other people's place at the same place at work. Okay. You know, there's this constant sense of being drawn along by the need to be the same not to be variable, right? So if I miss too many putts on the green, you know, like I put the first one off the green and it goes in the sand trap. Now I got to get my wedge out. Mm -hmm. I'm being highly variable for a golf course, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, they have marshals that drive around in carts on golf courses that tell you how long it's been since you left the first tee. <laughs> that sounds like and if fun. you're if that you're not like moving fun. if you're not moving fast enough they'll actually tell you to to leave the course uh-huh because you're holding everybody else up yeah right so I, I and i don't think this is just golf i think you look around you'll see this everywhere this idea of being sort of drawn along uh-huh that the purpose of arbitrary rule governance is to reduce variability yeah in the pack to make people more like each other than different. Mm -hmm. And so the stress and strain is going to be, um, if that's all you do, then your, 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 your value in life is how well did I follow the dog ahead of me? Right? So there's going to be some of that no matter what you do in therapy because people, their minds are built yeah. to do this. Okay. But it's the ability to create these points of separation, right? Like there are limits to this, Yeah. right? So in my case, I just stop golfing on days when it's crowded. But to do that, I had to give up golfing on those days, mm -hmm. right? But another thing I could do is say hi to the people psychologically waiting out there. I hope they're having a wonderful time. I hope they can enjoy the present moment because I'm going to enjoy mine, right? Mm -hmm. And then put the ball into the sand trap. I mean... <laughs> So it doesn't end up being an aversive experience. Okay. Even when you're supposed to be doing something that's rewarding or, you know. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, people over the years, like parents of really young children. Um, I ask them what's going on in your mind when you're sitting down and playing with your kids. You know, most of the time what you hear is I'm thinking about dinner. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what I got to get done when we're done playing, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm always thinking ahead and I'm not thinking about right here, right now, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what is transpiring in the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that, that goes so for if you show up in the moment, I wasn't joking when I said there's a legitimate wish, well wishing for those people in the middle of the fairway waiting for me to, to, to put out. Mm -hmm. I, I wish them well that they could kind of show up and not get dragged into their future, mm -hmm. right? And why is this guy getting in the way of my future? Mm-hmm. And instead, I thought we were out here to just be in nature, you know, smell things, see things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by points of separation, that people do have the ability to kind of create those little bubbles where they can expand their humanity in areas where there's a tendency to let them shrink. Yeah. Yeah. And as I, as I listen to you, Kirk, I, I am just um, really impressed and I have been for as long as I've, I've been to your trainings and, and listened to you speak to folks who are, are far, far, farther along and newcomers. And, and I think that for anybody listening, I just marvel at that ability. And I, and I hear as, as I've, you know, grown in my behavioral understanding, I hear so much more in, in what you're sharing. And I think it's just such a unique gift you have to be able to, to do that. And my, my question about some of that is, do you, do you have concerns about people like, you know, as you've, as you've seen this thing grow up over the decades, people not knowing about these behavioral roots? You know, anytime something goes viral, mm -hmm. and I think it's safe to say ACT has gone viral mm -hmm. within the mental health world. Um, you have the problem of, of scaling up, right? And I think that's true with all of the therapies that have become widely accepted. It just is inevitable that people come into these uh, models because of different things that draw them into them, right? And it's really not up to us to sort of legislate that or control it. Yeah. Um, it's to be expected. I don't think that the average person comes out of graduate training from an environment where people on the faculty say a knowledge of core behavioral principles is an absolute essential must that the person must demonstrate in their work mm -hmm. or they don't graduate from here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and the minute then people are kind of left to kind of pick this up in bits and pieces to get interested on their own, you know, and a lot of people do. I think the invitation that I would give them is you will find this work so much more simple and immediate and direct. The compliments that you just gave me, which uh, I appreciate originate in me being a diehard behaviorist mm -hmm. because I can add on cognition where needed. But okay. if you don't have behaviorism and you're in cognition, it's hard to add on behaviorism because yeah. it's such, it's such a, like we were talking about contextualism, it's, it's such a fundamental shift of perspective and it's a, um, it's a walking through the door of freedom. Like <clears throat> just one little 
example from my early career, the first years when I was working with uh, helping create DBT, mm-hmm. the only people I saw were uh, chronically suicidal people who were at high risk. Many of them had made 50 or more suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I begin to think is, what are the skills that are missing here? Instead of suicidality as some kind of a mental illness, it's the sort of looming threat. It just felt to me like we're missing out on a key ingredient here, which is we can dissect what's going on here and break it down into specific behavioral skills. And if we do that, we have a chance to teach those skills. Yeah. If we view suicidality as a symptom of mental illness, as some kind of aberration of human existence, mm-hmm. then all we're going to do is we're going to try to scare people into not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you look at DBT, that is the result of that perspective. The first perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This skills. is actually specific skills. That's the ringer. It's the. It's the <laughs> it's what we can teach people yeah right yeah when you were describing that that the alternative to that i kind of had the image of a it was like it's like as if a time machine existed for us to go back and fix some things that occurred so that this person didn't end up with these behaviors yeah well all we did was we just gave them names like borderline personality Mm -hmm. that basically supposedly answered some important question. I still haven't figured out what important question that is, (laughs) but it made everybody feel better. We now have a name for this, which we actually don't understand at all. And can't bill for. And we can't bill for it. Yeah. And when you tell somebody they're a borderline, they don't take it too well. Um, So, you know, that's, what cognitivism gives you that outs, inside out is you're left with labels that actually don't explain anything. Yeah. And then as a clinician, you have nothing. You, what, what are you going to do? So like when I was at working in mental health teams and the word borderline would come up, everybody would look down. People's phone would suddenly start going Oh, They all had imaginary phone calls. <laughs> Because nobody wanted to take the patient. Yeah. Because the name simply struck fear into people's hearts. It didn't actually describe anything that you could do. It does not. And that's the problem with inside out models. Yeah. You can, you can never see these things. And so you can't do anything about them. But when you talk about outside in, uh, you can measure people's affect tolerance yeah. by watching what they do uh, behaviorally in a simulation when you create a lot of affect. Yeah. You can watch what they do. Well, and you know, what that makes me think about is, is how inept we are at really helping these, these individuals. And, you know, I think back to my postdoc, which was in a crisis, inpatient crisis unit. And the, the, my, the, the people who are on the team there had been there for decades decades and they're just so jaded and like you know just oh that person's a borderline we you know there's nothing we can do basically that's the you know there's and that those are that's what that's what 
these folks who are struggling with this and having the 30 and the 50 suicide attempts are are in, encountering when they when they inter interface with yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I think the thing that <clears throat> the reason I left DBT and kind of went to ACT is that I felt that it was a more robust, scientifically supported approach, contextualism, RFT, mm -hmm. um, whereas I thought DBT was getting a little bit technique-y. Okay. We're falling into the same pattern that cognitive therapy did. People are getting some benefit, but we don't really know why. Yeah. We can't, we can't really explain it. Yeah. <clears throat> when we do research, it doesn't appear that the research justifies the theoretical explanation. Yeah. <clears throat> and I always thought ACT had a lot stronger roots, you know, in basic radical behaviorism, behavior analysis, um, you know, those put you in pretty solid company because you're going to be studying things more or less immediately, mm -hmm. right? And you can use mid-level constructs like mindfulness or acceptance mm -hmm. <coughs> within an RFT framework, right? So we can't necessarily see people's thinking, but we can infer you know, how the mechanisms of thought work and how they control behavior by looking at how people respond in laboratory simulations and stuff like that. And so yeah. I just, so for example, now when I think about a borderline, I don't, I don't even use that term. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an emotional avoidance engine, right? So their entire behavioral repertoire has sort of become hijacked by the need to emotionally regulate, right? So um, if we don't do something about emotional avoidance in the moment in which emotions show up that could be avoided, mm -hmm. the person's not likely to learn those skills. Mm. Like how do you make room for stuff that you previously avoided? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I actually find it far easier to work with people like that now than even it was at the beginning of my career. <coughs> because of this perspective. It simplifies the message. I mean, we're really boiling it down to if you do something really toxic, if you're really good at it, mm -hmm. <coughs> and you do it over and over and over again, and the result of doing it is you get more of the very thing that you're trying to suppress. Yeah. It's easy to see why people develop 10, 20, 30 year histories of suicide attempting. Mm -hmm. You're like a dog that's chasing its tail. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so you're never going to get out from under that unless you learn how to stand in the presence of those kinds of experiences and not do anything. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's <coughs> I really appreciate that, that direction and uh, the distillation. And I also want to mention, you know, I, I, re I really uh, am a fan of the work that you've done around, around, around this area of suicide and a good, I think a really good <clears throat> intro for anybody listening is the interview you did with Nesh on Better Thinking uh, podcast. That, that is a, a, a robust uh, dialogue as I've ever heard on suicide. So I wanna, wanna pass that along. Uh, so I wanna, as we, as we kind of wind down here, I'm, I'm wondering, <coughs> How is act not fact? I would say 
fact and act are the same thing in mm -hmm. their philosophical foundations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I would say they're, they're they're more different in the methodology. I wanted to promote your 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 course that you all are doing now. Um, or is it recorded? I don't. I can't. I don't it's know. recorded. Oh, it's recorded. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a fully online course. Yeah. It's uh, self-paced, so that you can watch the same modules over and over again. Okay. It's about sixteen hours of continuing education credit. It's okay. six modules. And, um, you know, fact is a simplified version of act. It's a condensed version. Okay. So what we teach is specific steps that you use to organize every session with a client. Mm -hmm. And that's what I meant by it's fact is different more by the methodology. Like there are things that you do in every visit with every client. that are always the same. Mm -hmm. Because if you follow those steps, you'll end up in the best possible position okay. to create a powerful behavioral experiment at the end of the conversation. So yeah, cool. In these modules, we go through each of these steps. <clears throat> we demonstrate them in role plays. And then we have people practice them kind of develop their own scripts. Mm -hmm. So like a good behaviorist, you know, everything that I do is sort of let's put it into concrete form. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is not rocket science. This is not something that only the select few know how to do. Mm -hmm. If that were the case, this is a worthless model. Right. <clears throat> but it is a model where you can get lost in the cerebral aspects of it. Yeah. Because <clears throat> there's layers and layers of implications. But actually, when you stand in front of somebody who's suffering the job you have, if you agree with my premise, by the end of this conversation, I want this person willing to try something they haven't tried before. Yeah. <clears throat> and okay. to be aware of what they're doing as they do it. So that when they come back, we can talk about how that resulted in different consequences in their life with respect to what their value directions are. And that's my job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it isn't how many metaphors am I going to spin out today? Uh, how many times am I going to use the word acceptance? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all about what is the best, most linear way from the beginning of the conversation to that point using act principles. Okay, cool. Well, it's yeah. been getting a lot of buzz and, uh, and I've got some, some colleagues and friends who've, who've, uh, signed up and are really enjoying it. So I, 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 uh, I hope those who are following along today and get to get the sense of, of, uh, of what's available to them, I think uh, could be a nice, nice addition to the, the wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm very, very excited about the course. And uh, it was a real eye opener for me to do something that was filmed. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> You know, when you do workshops, you just get up and you entertain people and you mm -hmm. have your riffs and mm -hmm. you're the rock stars, you know, people clap and laugh and all that kind of stuff, but they don't learn very much. Mm. That's what we know. That's what we know from years really? of educational research. 
workshops create believers. Okay. But they don't create professionals. Okay. <clears throat> In fact, I used to tell people, don't mistake your enthusiasm or your zealotry for preparedness. Just because yeah. you think just yeah. because you think act is really cool doesn't mean you know what to do. Uh-huh. I love that. Right? Love These that. are not the same thing. Yeah. <clears throat> well, how people learn skills is they have to be able to repeatedly expose themselves to the same content. Yeah. You know, in a workshop, you can't rewind what you said 30 minutes ago and start over. You're mm -hmm. you're running in real time. Yeah. That's the gig. And so I don't actually think workshops are a very good way to learn the techniques of a therapy. Yeah. I think you learn the techniques by slowing it down, breaking it down into chunks, <clears throat> kind of understanding each chunk in itself and then beginning yeah. to link chunks together, right? So that they start to seem like they're part of a sequence. Okay. Much like we, the way we learned to to, to write, right? We start by printing and just making simple letters and getting better and better at yeah. making the, the alphabet. Yeah. So the workshop yeah. is to get juiced up. That's what we, that's get, get invigorated, be with your community. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if you were trying to learn how to do a technique, a, a therapy, yeah, that isn't what I would recommend you do. I, okay. I'd say look for something where you have to slow down yeah, you have, to, you have to demonstrate skills one at a time. Uh -huh. You have to think about how they're going to actually work in your hands. Uh -huh. and, that, and that's what we do in the course. Wow, that's really that's really helpful. That's that's great. Uh, well, I want to I want to be sensitive to your, your <clears throat> biology there, and I, I can't help but think of Michael Jordan. You know, what was it like Game Six of you know one of these series? He had the flu, and he just he blew it blew it out of the water, and here you are with a sinus infection, just killing. So. Uh, <laughs> Then I'm going to get killed this afternoon when I go to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, they so, have uh, all their tools out. <laughs> the chainsaws running and everything. But you're in Oregon, so who knows what the hell is going to be on that table there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, put a link to the, the course and uh, to your, to Heart, Heart Matters uh, Consulting. And, uh, and if it's okay, I don't know if you're open for people contacting you for, for side stuff for consultation. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, so I'll put contact there and, and, uh, some, some, uh, links to some of your books. A little shout out to the, uh, suicide work that I've done, the third edition of the book that John Childs and I wrote, basically taking act and applying it to suicidal patients. Uh-huh. That was uh, the third edition of that was just released in 2018 by American Psychiatric Publishing. Okay. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's called Clinical Manual for Assessment and Treatment of Suicidal Patients. All right. I'll put a link. Yeah. Below. Yeah. And American yeah. Psychiatric Publishing, the people that brought you the DSM-5. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because throughout the book, we attack a lot of tried and true mythologies in psychiatry. Yeah. We attack um, whether hospitalization is actually an effective treatment or whether it's actually an invitation to suicide. Mm -hmm. um, we attack the idea that medications or psychotherapy mm. are known to be effective wow. in preventing suicides. We attack the idea that 
<clears throat> individual clinicians can predict with any degree of accuracy who's going to kill themselves and who's not. And uh, by the time we get done with all that, it's pretty much like a free for all. <laughs> it's a mosh pit. If yeah, <laughs> if none of if none of these uh, mythologies work, then we're left to go back to our behavioral roots mm -hmm. and start thinking about well, what can we do then, right? So, I'll, although I've been involved in many uh, book projects, it's quite interesting that the book that I still hear the most about um, from people was the suicide book. Interesting. In terms of its impact on their freedom of movement, their sense of empowerment when they practice. Yeah. <clears throat> There's some really good stuff in there. Yeah. Okay. That I think every clinician could benefit. Yeah, cool. Well, um, that's that's uh, that's going to get uh, a shameless on the bookshelf. Plug. Yeah, well, hey, it's 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 your it's your life's work and something that you're you're you really you've really grown and so I appreciate that and if you're interested in getting more functional, a good way to do that is through experiential work. And so if you're interested in a FAP training group, hit me up with my through my email below. It's a good place to to try some of this stuff on while building your skills through didactic and experiential work. I, I think I think a book that you need to publish is one of like Kirk Kirk's nuggets, you know? If I don't know if you've been jotting these down over the years, because there's so many that I, I, you know, I heard you once say uh, therapist bait and uh, and I just love that term so much. There's just like, you know, these things we chase that just it's just out of, you know, for our, I what I how I interpret it was like our curiosity and it just takes us so far off the course. So that's that's my my ploy to you is to do yeah. a, maybe a, a bathroom book. <laughs> Kirk's, Kirk's published by Reader's Digest. <laughs> <laughs> Contextual Reader's Digest. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thanks so much, Kirk. Uh, it's been it's been a blast, and I'm I'm really grateful for you adding your your uh, your your wisdom and voice to this project. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, you're doing great work. And uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Okay. But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger